Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Ocean, Ocean Science, Science Radio. Radio. I'm Andrew Kornblatt. And I'm Samantha Wishnack. This is the second in our continuing special February series on ocean reproduction called Ocean, ocean Lovin'. As we did with the last episode, let me introduce our special co-host from the Ocean Podcast, Strictly Fish Wrap, Science Radio Hour, Skylar Bear. Last episode, we discussed the strange sex lives of lobsters, mantis shrimp, and seahorses. This episode, we are talking about the sex lives of cephalopods. Try saying that ten times fast. To start off, we talked to an expert on these curious creatures. My name's Mike Deckion. And I'm a zoologist, I, a cephalopod biologist, actually. I study squids and octopods and their relatives. And I work for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, but I actually work at the Smithsonian's Natural History Museum. So what exactly are cephalopods? The animals that I study, the cephalopods, are related to things like snails and clams. They're, they're mollusks as well. But they're very different as far as their body structures are concerned. They all have a set of arms that surround their mouth. So they're basically a head with a bunch of arms. Yep. In fact, the name cephalopod is Greek for head, cephalo, and foot, pod. So there you go. How many arms they have depends on what kind of animal it is. Most of them have either eight or ten, although... The Nautilus, which has an external shell, has many, many. The, the thing that they have in common with the other cephalopods is that all of these appendages form a ring around the mouth, and they also have two really well-developed eyes, and they all have a well-developed nervous system, including a, a highly specialized brain and other nervous Adaptations. Cephalopods are found almost throughout the world's oceans, with exceptions including estuaries, where the salinity is very, very low, the deepest trenches in the world, and a few ocean basins, including the Black Sea. They are even found in plankton, as Mike found out in graduate school. Somebody showed me how to sort a sample of plankton to pick out the snails that are in it. And after they showed me how to do it, I pulled a jar down off of a shelf to do the first one sorting all by myself, and I poured it out. And there was this big squid in it, the biggest squid I've ever seen in a plankton sample. And I said, that's what I want to work on right there. Not only do these strange creatures range in size, shape, and live all over the ocean at different depths, the way that they attract mates, and even the mechanics of their sex life are completely fascinating. And to tell us a bit more about cephalopod courtship, we talked to someone who knows how to set the cephalo mood. So my name is Brett Grassi. I'm a senior marine aquarist and a cephalopod operations manager at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Cephalopod reproduction is actually pretty spectacular to view, uh, both in the wild and in captivity, if you're lucky enough to catch it. One of the species that Brett studies is known as the flamboyant cuttlefish. The flamboyant cuttlefish is very correctly named in that it's just very, very beautiful. It's much more striking and with these loud kind of flamboyant colors compared to a lot of other cuttlefish species. Uh, cephalopods in general, which is octopuses, squid, nautilus, and cuttlefish, they, they're known to sort of being cryptic and a little bit tough to see. Well, the flamboyant cuttlefish is basically the exact opposite of it. They've got very bright, loud yellows and pinks and the black hypnotic bands that sort of pulse over their back as they amble across the ocean floor. Very beautiful species. As you may know, cephalopods have the ability to change the color and even the apparent texture of their skin at will. This ability is used in camouflage, communication, and even trying to attract a mate. Typically, especially with uh, cuttlefish and some squid species, 
you see these beautiful dynamic coloration displays where they're trying to court members of the opposite sex. And these courtship displays will range from anything of these bright, bright iridescent blues and greens that will sort of flicker and flash on and off. And then also they'll kind of shape and move the color all over their body as they're uh, recording one another. There are some incredible videos of the control that cephalopods have over the pigment controlling cells in their skin, also known as chromatophores. One that I am particularly obsessed with shows a cuttlefish species where a male is courting a female. The female is showing what could be said to be sexually receptive colors. The male is literally split in half. The side facing the female is matching her, and the side that is facing away from his prospective mate shows a much more aggressive color and pattern. So courting his special lady friend while also telling any potential competitors, back off. Then the male swims to the other side of the female and almost instantly his coloring flips with the seductive coloration and patterns always facing the female. That's not only common with cuttlefish, but also some octopuses and squids can do that as well. And what we call that is bipartite coloration. And essentially what they're able to do is communicate two different messages using their one information channel, which is the color on their body. They can communicate type of courtship display towards the female and let them know that, you know, they're, they've got the right stuff to attract that female, whereas they can use the other half of their body to convey a completely different message and, yeah, tell any sort of other competing males to stay away that this is my female and kind of really demonstrate a very aggressive type of coloration to the outside suitors. When you're not able to communicate with audio, you really rely on that those color schemes to deliver your messages and your information down there under the ocean. So most cephalopods will use their coloration to communicate with others and to try and attract a mate. What is something unique to the cuttlefish? There's one other phenomenon that's pretty unique amongst cuttlefish, and that's this behavior known as the sneaker male. The sneaker mount. Such romantic terminology. So what happens is that these very large, dominant male cuttlefish will court and find a suitable female, and then protect that female from any other big, larger males. Or so he thinks. Some smaller, more subordinate males are able to actually put on female coloration, so basically dress themselves up like girls, get close enough to that large male who's guarding the female, so that the sneaker male is not really a threat to that large male. And essentially you can sort of sneak in and mate with that female before the large dominant male even realizes that he got in there. Sounds like Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon dressing up to get their girls in Some Like It Hot. I love that movie! So with all those arms, cephalopods must get a little handsy when it comes to actual reproduction. Handsy. Oh, they certainly do. All cephalopods that we know of so far have separate sexes. Males and females. The males transfer a packet of sperm, a spermatophore, to the female. In many species, males even have a specialized arm just for the task of transferring the spermatophore. Depending on the species, these mating opportunities can be very quick. Like with octopuses, that once they mate, in most cases, they'll separate very quickly. They're much more solitary animals. Whereas cuttlefish and some squids will stay interlocked face-to-face so that this special hectocotyl arm can successfully transfer the sperm to the female. So cuttlefish do cuddle. One could say that they look a little bit like they're cuddling when they're mating, yeah. While all cephalopods, like cuttlefish, transfer their sperm through these arms, where the package of sperm actually is put can vary quite a bit. Here's Mike again. In some species, the package actually injects itself into her muscle tissue and stays there until she's ready to use the sperm. 
In others, it's placed in strategic locations around either inside her body or around her mouth or in, in various places. The female then somehow, and we don't actually really know how, transfers the sperm to fertilize the eggs. And then she lays her eggs in various types of egg masses. How egg masses get laid varies quite a bit. So some are attached to the seafloor and left behind. Others are left to float in the water as a giant mass or even individual eggs. But most octopuses actually lay eggs on a structure and then take care of them, sometimes for a long, long, long time. How long exactly? A species of deep-sea octopod cares for its eggs much longer than any other animal that we know about. It, it actually takes uh, at least four years for the eggs to hatch out, and the, the female stays with them and takes care of them throughout that entire time, waiting for the, the eggs to develop and hatch out. And when that was first reported, it was really surprising that, it, that they would be able to, to stay with it for that long. Wait, how did they figure that out? Like Mike said, this story really shook up the octopus reproduction scene. Researchers at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute use these huge underwater robots to dive deep into underwater canyons and survey deep-sea animals. And over four years, they returned to one survey site over and over again, 18 times in fact, and each time saw the same grayish octopus, a scientific name, Granulodone boreo pacifica, guarding her eggs. That was one octopus over four years on the same mass of eggs. While four years can seem like a long time to us, to some species of octopus, that can be a lifetime. Here to tell us about one such cephalopod is Tim. Nice creep into a segue there. My name is Tim Carpenter, and I'm the curator of fish and invertebrates at the Seattle Aquarium. Tim and his team study a slew of different cephalopod species, but one gets special attention at his aquarium. Giant Pacific octopuses are definitely a favorite around here. In the Seattle area in Washington State, their lifespan is about three to four years. Every year for the last 10 years, the aquarium celebrates Octopus Week from February 18th to the 16th with fun learning activities that really draw in crowds. Included in that list of activities is what is known as an octopus blind date. This year, they weren't actually able to have one due to some unforeseen circumstances. But Tim, can you tell us a little bit about the process? Our main giant Pacific octopus exhibit has the capacity to display a male and a female. The male and the female are separated on our exhibit. Octopuses, when they're an adult, generally stay away from each other. And usually, if an octopus meets another octopus out in the wild, it's going to either end in an aggression and avoidance, or, if they're both receptive, a mating. And so we're hoping that when we take the barrier down between the two animals that we have on display, they like each other and they're both in the stage of their lives where they can uh, actually mate. So we have this little blind date. The aquarium really goes above and beyond when it comes to this event. It's quite a big deal down here. Everybody loves it down here. It's, you know, we put flowers in the tank and hearts around and we try to talk up the Valentine's Day part of the deal. <laughs> Once these animals mate successfully, they both actually get released back out into the wild so that the male can go walk about and do what he needs to do and the female can find a den and lay her eggs. So we allow them to sort of complete their life, life cycles without having the period of time in our exhibits being a detriment to their natural cycle. Enough with the romance, but where is the science? Like many cephalopods, they are terminal spawners, meaning that they live to a certain stage in their life, and at that stage they go through the transformation of ending their feeding and growing stage, and they go into a stage called senescence, 
where they start to look for mates and are on their sort of downhill slide towards the the end game, which is finding a mate and breeding, at which point the females and the males do different things when they hit their senescence. Uh, Males will start sort of, we call it going walkabout. The term literally is used to describe randy male octopi searching for love. They are receptive to females. Uh, There's a lot of research that has shown that the females are detectable by pheromones in the water, such that if there's a female that's in reproductive state, that they will actually, quote-unquote, attract males to their locality. The males find receptive females. The females use the males' stuff to fertilize a clutch of eggs. The babies are born and grow up. The process repeats. With cephalopods, the story is a little different, and in the case of the giant Pacific octopus, much bigger and much faster. The giant Pacific octopus starts life about the size of a grain of rice and can reach sizes of 80 to 90 to 100 pounds in only three years. So they're they're really packing it on so that once they go into that senescence, they don't feed and they can live off of their own tissues for two or three months. And the female, once she lays her eggs, her last two or three months are just spent in that den blowing water over the eggs. She doesn't eat and she just essentially wastes away while her eggs develop. And that is the tragic story here. With the exception of Nautilus, cephalopods reproduce once and then die. Die? Yes, they die. Dead as a doornail. Finito. Game over. The end. Any theories why? Here's Mike again. A lot of people ask why they are short-lived and only reproduce once. And, you know, if if they're so intelligent, which people uh, think they are, how does it make sense that they, they have such a short life cycle and that the answer to that is that they are really good to eat. <laughs> so there's a lot of predation pressure on them. And so uh, animals that are under a lot of predation pressure tend to develop really quickly and reproduce really quickly so that they are able to reproduce before something eats them. With each of the species we covered in this episode, the story ends with a mother watching over her clutch of eggs, carefully washing them and nurturing them, and then expiring. It's actually rather beautiful, in a way. And on that happy note, I think we'll wrap up this episode. Big thanks to our guests and special guest host, Skylar. Big thanks to you, our listeners. Be sure to catch us on the next... Ocean Ocean Science Radio. Radio. (sighs) I am so glad I'm not a cephalopod. Sex once and then guarding eggs until you waste away? I would get so hangry. So is Tinder for cephalopods just called sucker? Huh. <laughs>